0: really not uncommon for me in counseling to talk with a husband and a wife, and for the wife usually to say something like this, my husband is always finding fault with me. If I feel like I can't do anything right, everything I do he criticizes. No matter how hard I try, it just seems like he's finding fault with me. I heard one lady say, I have to get up in the morning and I have to read inspirational quotes every day just to make it through the day. Well, I'll tell you, it's really worse than that. It's not just that sometimes we live with a person who misunderstands us or we have human people who misunderstand us or who choose to be our enemies. There's actually something worse going on that the accuser of the brethren accuses us to our hearts and before God. And it's actually better news than that, and that is we, we can do better, although I'm all for inspirational quotes, we can do better than inspirational quotes. We have the, the word of the living God. We actually have the inspired writing of one of the persons who was closest to Jesus in his lifetime, This of the apostle John. Years and years ago, I had an experience that I will never forget. I would love to relive. There was a Christian leader that I admired a great deal and loved to be around him. And he, was in, he inspired me and encouraged me and taught the Bible. And we were together with a group way up north. And we were in a dining hall, dining room, a very beautiful wood panelled dining room. And we had a beautiful meal and some music. And then after the meal and after the music, the chairs were really comfortable. Everybody just kind of pushed back from the table, and they cleared our tables. And and then this leader got up, and he began to tell stories about what God had done over the years. And it was—I'll never forget that night. It, it, because there was such an interest in the room, the unplanned event kind of went on for about an hour, and nobody moved. Nobody wanted to move. The sun set over the lake, and it was a beautiful night— it, when I read First John, I, I'd like for you to have that feeling. We're not talking about a great Christian leader here. We're talking about the Apostle John. John who was intimate, had intimate and pure and sincere fellowship with Jesus. He knew Jesus very well. That's why it says in First John chapter 1, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life." this life was manifested we saw it we bear witness to it we declare it to you john is saying this isn't something i've just read about this isn't something just i've just heard about i know jesus christ now he has passed through a life of faithfulness he's trained many he's discipled many he's witnessed to many he's built churches he's taught converts he has Christian families spread all over. He's been persecuted. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He lived through that experience, and now he, 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 he's writing epistles. This is the one who has written these epistles. And he starts out, the section we're in now is in chapter 2 and verse 1, and it begins with a a warm kind of family beginning. My little children, he says, not in a condescending way, but in a compassionate way, in a loving way, he says in in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the big word warning, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. My little children is a term of endearment. John likes to use the family uh, to illustrate the experience of being a follower of Jesus. And so this book, this, this letter, we call it a book, it's a letter, it's a brief epistle, a letter. It's filled with family references. He's He's comparing our fellowship with the Lord and our fellowship with one another like a good, uh, healthy family, and so he says here, "My little children." Um, then he has two bits of advice, and so we have two major points here to understand this little passage. And of course, you know there are our subpoints, but and they're these. Here's what the aged apostle says to us. First of all, he says, "I'm writing to you so that you." Don't sin. And, that, and it's interesting how the older we get, the wiser we get, the more direct and simple our counsel is. Just don't sin. Can I give you some advice? Don't sin. You want to stay out of trouble? Don't sin. It's what the apostle says. He says, don't sin. Have you ever, do we have any perfect people here tonight? Any Anybody perfect here tonight? A pastor did that one day. He said, who here is perfect? Is anybody perfect? Do I have anybody in the house that's willing to say they're perfect? One little fellow in the back raises his hands and he goes, you know, I'm not perfect, but I've heard about a perfect man all of my life. And the pastor says, well, who is that? And he said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> He's the only perfect man I've ever heard about. Well, that's not the right answer. I heard about a little girl that her parents were going to go away on a, on a vacation. It was, a, uh, it was kind of a second honeymoon. So there was a good Christian family that lived next door. And they had four boys. And they, they thought, well, let's leave our daughter with this family. And uh, th- we trust them. And so they left their little girl with this family. And it was a wonderful experience. And every night they had dinner. And after dinner they had a devotional time. And, and, they, and the father would you know read the Bible. And then he would pray uh, after it was all over with. The little girl went home to her family. And they said, how did it go? And she said, it was wonderful. You know, They had dinner every night, and then they had Bible reading, and then they had prayer, and the dad would always pray, help my boys to be good. And then the little girl said, now God never answered that prayer while I was there. (laughs) Have you had that experience in your own life, though? Trying hard to be good, and yet, you know, falling short. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7, in verse 20, there is not a just man on earth that does good and does not sin, but but John's advice nonetheless right off the top is the best thing to do about sin is avoid it. And if you've done any sinning, you know I'm right about that. You know he's right about that. The best way to handle sin is just don't do it in the first place because it's such a mess to clean up. It's it's such a troublesome thing. It causes so many complications in your life. If at all possible, this is the the aged apostles, you know, cryptic advice, don't sin. That's what he says. Don't sin. Think deeply about the damage that will come when you sin, before you do it. Walk through the carnage and the collateral damage to others before you sin. I've often thought about this in the church. And one of the great sins in the church is probably not you know, fornication and drunkenness and drug abuse. and it's, it's, it's just an ungoverned tongue. and It's just harmful to the church. I've felt the sting of that greatly you know, in my own ministry. And I'm sure I've been guilty of it, too. Uh, and I often thought, if a person just thought, what's going to happen when they say that? Or what, if I just thought ahead of time, it, what, what collateral damage is going to Who's going to be discouraged? What harm is going to come to the work of Christ? If I say these words, maybe I just better turn this into a prayer. Maybe I better just keep it to myself. Think about the people you will harm. Everybody touches other people. Think deeply about the grief and the shame and the distance you will feel from the Lord. Think Um, this. Someone said this one time, a secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. A secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Tonight, we'll talk about that just a little bit. John is just saying, don't sin. But there's something more to this too when he says, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. He's saying don't sin, but he's saying something more. Did you catch it in the grammar there? I'm telling you this so that you realize you don't have to sin. That you may not sin. You don't have to sin. It doesn't mean that you have to sin. There there are means. John is not saying you will not sin. We're going to see that in a minute, in the next phrase. But he's saying you don't have to see sin as inevitable. Will you sin? Yes, you will sin. Do you have to sin? No, you don't have to sin. Let's not see it as inevitable, I once had a a, a friend, I mean a dear friend, a wonderful guy, he sinned in a, bless you, he sinned in a grievous way. Um, And um, his life came unglued when he did that. It was one of those kind of big meltdown your life kinds of sins, you know. And this happened with him, you know, it was just sad. I won't go into the details, it's too painful to talk about. But he, and a wonderful man, I love very much, and yet he sinned in a grievous way, and his life just melted down. And then he friended me on Facebook a while later, and I just said to him, I, I care about you, I love you, but what does this mean? I was being friends on Facebook. Where are you with the Lord? And, and he said, you know, what I did was wrong. Almost immediately after I did it, I couldn't undo it. It was done. I know I was wrong. And I asked God to forgive me. And I believe that God has forgiven me. I want to go on from here. Now, who, can, who here in this room could withhold forgiveness from a man? I mean, when you're kneeling at the cross, you've got to make room for everybody else to kneel at the cross if they want to kneel at the cross. But here's the fact that nobody really talked about with this with this dear friend of mine, this dear brother. Some of the consequences of his sin in this lifetime will never be erased. Is he forgiven? Yes, he's forgiven. Is he right with God? Yes, he's sincere. He's right with God. Will he go to heaven? He will go to heaven. But did he get to walk his daughter down the aisle when she got married? No. Will he ever be able to look his wife in the eye many years later and say, I've been faithful to you for 60, 70 years? No. She's another man's wife now. Will he ever be able to say to his son, Son, you don't do this? He's got to say, well, son, I did this, but I don't want you to do this. The best way to handle sin is... Ask God to help you not to do it, okay? So this is what the apostle says in the first place, don't sin. But followed immediately is the next, you know, the second, and that is, when you do sin, can I say it this way? When you do sin, he's going to say something about that, I'll read it. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's talk about that. Here's what he's saying. The Apostle John, in one sense, he's saying, don't sin. But when you do sin, look to Jesus. That's what he's saying. When you do sin, and listen to this, all of us have sinned. And the best thing to do, th- by the way, this is a, we're breaking into the middle of a thought here when we, we use the chapter heading 2, isn't really the beginning of the thought, it's the middle. It's talking about confession. So it's talking about sin, but in particular it's talking about confession and fellowship and cleansing. And what he's been saying is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, uh, sins of the whole world. And so when he's saying that, you know, I said earlier, uh, secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Here's what I mean. Unseen to us in the heavens, a number of things happen in the spirit world when we sin and when we confess our sin. When we sin, you understand, there is the accuser who does this work. You know, conscience condemns us and accuses us, but the evil one can accuse us. Satan actually has access to the throne of God, where he can go and choose to accuse the brethren. The Bible says that. Uh, also, he can accuse your heart, and so sometimes it's hard to un, uh, untangle a sense of guilt. Is this conviction from the Lord or this accusation from the evil one? And tonight, I'll tell you exactly how you can figure out which is which. But in the, but what we're saying here is. That something is not just happening with you. Something's happened in heaven, you know, that, if, that affects the, the whole uh, spirit world, if you will. In Revelation 12, which we just studied, there comes a time when the, the Bible says that they're singing and rejoicing in heaven. And why? Because the accuser has been cast down, the one who accused before the throne Day and night. He demands. Every time he gets a chance, when you sin, you know, it's like he goes before God and he demands the death penalty. It's like he's a demonic prosecuting attorney and he's demanding the death penalty for you. Let him die. Let them be condemned. They deserve it. And let's see, here's the problem. That's true. Sin, death, that's true. What he's saying is true. We have sinned. Sin equals, and we, we deserve to die spiritually. And so he makes this case, this, this, this demonic prosecuting attorney Before the throne makes the case, let them have the death penalty. And so, in a sense, what's happening is that the the, the devil is saying, look at them, look what they did. Right? But then, Jesus is saying, look at me, look what I did. We have an advocate, and really this text only talks about one. We have an inner advocate, we have an advocate within us. The same word is used, this word advocate here is the same word used, guess where else? guess how else this is translated in the Bible? It's also in the writings of the Apostle John. In the Gospel of John, when the Apostle John wrote about the promise that Jesus gave that the Holy Spirit would come, and he'd say, you have a paraclete, paracletos, comes alongside, and, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside. Same word, advocate, one that comes alongside to comfort you in a difficult time. In this case, like an attorney that represents you before the judge who is the Father. So you have the prosecuting attorney calling for the death penalty. You have the righteous judge who cannot allow any unholiness to go unpunished. You have the guilty soul, that's you and me. And you have the advocate Jesus Christ, who just happens to be the judge's son. How does that look for you? Oh, and by the way, in chambers, before everything, they have worked it out with the judge... That the, the advocate, who is the son of the judge, is going to, and, and he's, he's innocent of any charges, is going to actually, he's going to pronounce you guilty, but he's, but then he, the son, is going to take the penalty that you should have paid. So that's what this is talking about. Notice these three things here. The advocate is the first one. He goes before the Father on your behalf. He's on your side to help. He immediately advocates when we sin, and then after that probably is when we confess our sin, and uh, and the Spirit convicts, and we confess, and then we enjoy the sense of unbroken fellowship. This is what Christians do. This is a mark of a Christian. Like David, in Psalm 139, though he had sinned in many grievous ways, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any unclean thing in me. His prayer wasn't, you know, search them, oh God, look at them, look at the bad things. It was search me, oh God, see if there's any unclean way in me. That is what will, this will help you tonight. Oh, for all of us, read through Psalm 139 and look at the staggering promises of Psalm 139. The beautiful, intimate, the beautiful poetry of Psalm 139. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, um, he knows your frame before you were even uh, conceived. And, and, and he uh, and, and, and has his thoughts of you. He never stops thinking about you. When you wake up in the morning, he's thinking about you. He numbers your days. All these are in Psalm 139. And, then it, and so David says, well, if all this is true, then don't let anything come between me and you. Search me and know my heart. This is what, if you want revival, in your own heart, before you go to bed tonight, sincerely pray the prayer. Search me and know my heart. Know my ways. And and if you see anything there, then confess it. And what happens when you confess? Listen, what happens when you confess? You say, oh, I confess my sin over and over again. Yes, and over and over again, the advocate goes before the judge and silences the accuser. On your behalf. Believe it. It's right here. He, if it's not true, he's not faithful and just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, can, and to cleanse us from any unrighteousness. Thank the Lord. What a verse. You can't name a sin. And many of the sins you didn't, wouldn't want to name. You can't name a sin that's not included in that verse. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have an advocate. Thanks be unto God. Now this advocate, he is righteous. Look what it says. He, um, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous judge. Jesus Christ, and he's called what? The righteous. The righteous. This is a great, it's one of the bookends of the Christian life. It's one of the pegs of the Christian life. It's one of the foundations of the Christian life, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you come and you're having communion and you're thinking about taking communion and you think, am I perfectly holy before God? What's the answer to that question? Am I perfectly holy before God? That's a trick question. It depends on what I mean. If I, do I have perfect standing of holiness before God through Christ? Yes. And so therefore, in the, in the sight of God, Before the throne of God, you have perfect holiness in the sight of God based on Jesus Christ's righteousness. And the evidence of that will be that you'll be growing in righteousness too and that you'll hate sin and love good. But it's Christ's righteousness. The only hope that you and, I have not to be, you and I have not to be completely vaporized into judgment before God is the, is the one who is perfect has paid our sin penalty. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Thanks be unto God. So when you go to communion, you thank God for the righteousness of Christ and you plead that that righteousness would be lived out. You have, you know, granted to you would be also lived out in your experience more and more in this life until your glorified state so that's, the you have an advocate. The advocate is righteous. And by the way, he's the judge's beloved son. That's great, isn't it? You know, with, with me, the way I am is, it's, it's, it's hard for me to be mad at people very long at all. I, I, I'm not very good at being mad at people very long at all. I can get quickly irritated, but I can't stay mad long, you know, because so, um, I'm sensitive. So enough of that about me. But I can bounce back, you know, and thats you don't need to be scared around me. I like you, and I'm your pastor, so, you know, don't be scared around me. I'm not saying that. But here's the thing that's even harder. What if you were mean to one of my kids? I'd be like, oh, that, now, you, now it's hard. You know, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to go home, and we're going to talk, and we're going to put you on our prayer list. We are. We're, me and the kid that you were mean to, we're going to put you on our prayer list, and we're still going to be nice to you, right? But that's going to be a lot harder. Okay, flip that on its head. If you come and you're nice to me, well, that's great. I'll think you're a nice person. But, but today, a man wrote to me, and I could tell he was going through a trial. And he's a guy who had been good to one of my kids. And so I immediately, though it's a very busy day, I'm say, I immediately sent him my phone. and said, please call me. I want to talk to you. And he called me on the phone, and I tried to encourage him. And he said, you're a busy man. You don't have time for me. And I said to him, I said, Greg, listen. I said, you are good to my boy, and that puts you in a very special place in my heart. And so it is with our, our Heavenly Father. He adores His Son. Before time began, they had loving fellowship and agreement, the sweetest intimacy and fellowship any beings could ever have in the Godhead. And they agreed that Jesus would come and die so that He could be our advocate and our payment and our, and, and the one who uh, bears the wrath of God. And the Father delights in the Son. And we, when we pray, we pray in the merit, in the name of the Son, based on the righteousness of the Son. Jesus, we, we don't go to the Lord, hey, answer my prayer because I've been good. Don't, don't say that. that that's, that's not a really good idea. Don't say, give me what I deserve, God. Don't say that to God. Say, give me what Jesus deserves. That's what you want to say. That's, you say, well, that's hootspot. Yeah, that, but you have every right because he's promised. You just go and say, I, I, can't hard, I can hardly believe this promise, but I'm coming to claim it. I'll never forget somebody giving me a, a tremendous gift. And saying, come down here and get it. Drive down here. I drove down there. It was a holy experience to drive down and with trembling hands receive this tremendous gift. Humbling gift. I just, I will never in my life forget it. But it, as big as it is, it's nothing compared to this gift. That Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually, His blood continually cleanses us from all sin. Let's get that fixed in our heart. You are seasoned Christians for the most part. And it's our job to murmur this out so the children really understand the gospel and the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That they don't think we're a do-gooder society. Good happens, but that's not what this is about. We don't get together to be a do-gooder society. We're not a moral reformation society. We're not a we're not a kind of an old boys' lodge trying to do good stuff. It's lots sweeter than that. It's lots deeper than that. It's much much richer than that. It is people who are sinners and know it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, and then living out that because we have an advocate who is righteous. And the third thing is, he is the propitiation for our sin. Now. In the Bible, you can decode this. This is a tricky word, propitiation. It's hard to say, and what on earth does it mean? Well, when you have a difficult knot in the wood like that, then it's there for a really good reason. You know, it's almost like a doctor, or in a technical field of any kind, if it was in music or law or medicine, there are te- there's technical language that only the inside guys and gals know. And why is that? Because you need to be really precise in that area. You know? you know, I go, it's my liver or my spleen. Well, to a doctor, that might matter which one it is. To me, it's just one of my innards. I don't know, you know. And he goes, well, let's decide which, of which that is, you know. Don't take my lung out if you're supposed to take my kidney out because that would not be good, right? Um, and so you have to have precision there. And this is true. <laughs> and, yeah, this is a great illustration. This is true um, in the area of, of the, the words, the theological words used for what Jesus did. It's so rich. And in this case, there though there's a very concrete way that we can understand this because it's translated a couple of ways in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, it's translated mercy seat, propitiation, mercy seat. So what's that? Well, when they when they built the tabernacle, and then later when they built the temple, there were there were there were things that they built uh, the. Uh, the, um, the furnishings of the temple. But one of the things was the, was the ark and upon it a mercy seat. And when the blood was shed, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The idea was this is the place of, of fellowship and meeting and communion with God that's only possible because the lamb was slain and shed his blood and the father recognized that as the payment for sin. And so there, because God is so perfect and beautiful and holy because he cannot ever allow filthy, vile things to happen because he's holy. His holy character has to be satisfied, and we can't do that. But Jesus did do that. And and when he shed his blood on our behalf, God saw that as the payment, as you know. And so then the wrath of God was satisfied. And when Jesus stepped in between us and the just wrath of God, that's propitiation. He absorbed the wrath of God. And it implies also that he not only absorbed God's wrath, but made restoration of relationship possible. So that's huge because he was right with the Father and has always been right with the Father. He's an advocate who is righteous, who is our propitiation. And that's not a small thing. And so he absorbs the punishment we deserve. Did you ever notice um, in literature, even in the simplest literature, the redemptive themes are the ones that really sing like Becky Thatcher and Tom Sawyer. Remember that? Remember Becky Thatcher was supposed to get a whipping at school? And Tom Sawyer, is this how it was? Tom Sawyer took her place and he took the beating. And there's something about that that just makes your heart kind of perk up. Why is that? Because that's deep in our souls. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our punishment. Once and for all, if you're sitting here tonight and you're remembering past failures, you don't have to be you don't have to be overwhelmed with shame and guilt and remorse anymore. If people have been putting you down, fault finding you, maybe even the people dearest to you because they were emotionally broken people just put you down and it's like the soundtrack of your life is just put downs and the soundtrack of your life is just fault finding and the soundtrack of your life is just continual. You know, this is who I am. I'm a loser or I'm a sinner or I'm bad or I, you know, listen, listen, the God the Father has spoken over you truth and He's given His Son as your advocate who argues for you before the throne of God and He Himself is righteous and is the propitiation for your sin. You don't need to feel condemned. Listen, this should brighten your day. This should lighten your load. This should put a great joy on your face no matter what you're going through. That Though others may condemn you, the God of the universe does not condemn you. You can be free, but only if you know Christ as your Savior. Do you realize this is so important to Jesus that He did it while he was gasping in death on the cross, he was advocating on the cross. On the cross, he's crying out in prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what it looks like. Don't, don't You don't have to punish them. I'm taking a punishment for their cruelty right now. How wonderful is that? Father, forgive them. So that's all worked out and arranged before time began. And you have this interesting phrase that says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Just a note note about that. You ever heard of the doctrine of universalism? There's a doctrine called universalism. And the idea is that everybody's either already saved or eventually going to be saved because of the work that Jesus did with no... Uh, repentance and belief on their part. And now there's a twist on this universalism. Some have said, well, and this won't, maybe will happen for some people after they die. Now, here's the problem with that. You can't defend that with the Bible because the Bible doesn't teach that. What the Word of God teaches is that some will die outside of Christ who have not believed, and they will suffer eternal conscious torment and face the judgment of God and suffer eternal conscious torment. That's very clear in the Bible. Jesus taught that. And those who believe, who throw themselves upon the Lord for mercy, even if they didn't live a long, good life because they believed, even if it was sincerely in the last few moments of their life they sincerely believed, they are given God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, and they will live in eternal bliss with God forever. That's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach universalism. So you can't look at this doctrine and say that he died for the sins of the whole world on the very face of it, you've got to recognize that it must mean something different than everybody in the world is automatically saved, because that would be contradictory with the rest of the Bible. And so theologians have different ways of understanding this. It's just really helpful for me to see a passage like this and realize there's nobody in the world that ever gets right with God, in the whole world, but those who are born again through Jesus Christ as their advocate, as their uh, propitiation uh, and, and as their righteousness, only one, and this and throughout the scriptures, whenever it refers to this, in uh, chapter four, I think there's a reference to this, let's see if I can uh, find it. Yeah, in chapter four and verse ten in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his Son to be the propitiation uh, for our sins. Um, the, the, there are a number of places in the scriptures that talk about the, a couple of things. One is that God's offer of mercy is available to people all over the world, and that whosoever will may come, and so forth. And those should be, understand, in the simplest terms, this is uh, we're supposed to give a universal declaration of the gospel to everyone, recognizing that not everyone will be saved, but we give the gospel to everyone. We're aggressive and faithful in, in, in the gospel, and we, and we, are, we take a backseat to no one in our aggressive missionary efforts, our evangelistic efforts. We talk about it all the time. It's in our name here in this church, and yet we also recognize that not everyone will be saved, right? And so um, maybe you should think about it like this, and we'll talk more maybe in the future about this, but maybe you should think about it like this uh, tonight. Um, and and that is, um, when you were a kid, do you remember, I hope you had a good dad. And if you didn't have a good dad, I want you to just fantasize that you had a good dad. I had a good dad. One of the highlights of the day was when my dad came home. I mean, just any day he came home. He is a hard worker. So when I was really little and I longed for him the most, he was... A factory laborer, a pastor, and a seminary student. I remember one night when my dad was a factory laborer and a pastor and a seminary student. He worked second shift, so he wasn't home at nighttime when I was a little boy. And I remember one night my mom said to me just before bedtime, Dad is sick and he's coming home. And I said, Oh, boy! (laughs) I'm just so happy. And my mom said, Your dad is sick, Kenny. And I go, Okay. But she could not suppress my joy. Even if he was coming home sick, I was just glad he was coming home. Isn't that mean? That shows how selfish I was. I remember, I can see my little skinny dad driving that that Plymouth Belvedere in the driveway that night. And the joy I had that my dad was home. And he called me buddy he would always come in and he'd scoop me up and, how you doing, buddy? And we would talk about things. If it was a good night in the spring, we'd go out in the front yard, we'd throw the baseball until the sun went down or we would go out and we would just spend time together. He would say, good dad. Every once in a while my mom would say, Kenny, what have you done here? When did you do, did you break this? Did you, did you hide that? Did you steal this? And I would be in trouble for something bad. And it would just seem like my world came apart. And then my mom would say these horrifying words. She would say, you know, your dad is going to have to know about this. We're going to have to, or even sometimes we'd say, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> We're just going to have to wait until your dad gets home. And then that kind of changed everything. I'd be like, oh no. You know, i it was a weird feeling, right? I wanted my dad to come home, but I didn't want my dad to come home. But I really wanted my dad to come home, but, but I didn't want my dad to come home. And my, here's what my dad would do. You know, he would come home and... Like I said, he was really a good dad. And he was studying theology, so, you know, that was good. And he would usually, you know, punish me in some reasonable way. But he would always, 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 he would never, like, punish me, like, get out of my sight. I don't ever want to see you again. Never. No, that wouldn't be the way. It would be like he would reasonably punish me maybe withhold something from me or maybe even, you know, a spank him. But then he would hold me and he would tell me he loved me and he would say, we're okay. Now we're gonna try harder. We're gonna do better. Let's memorize a Bible verse. We can, we can get on top of this, Kenny. I remember one night, I, and I've told you this before. I stole something—a little piece of a candy bar—and um, then the kid went crazy over it. The low life piece of junk went crazy over it, and and the and the, and the teacher uh, sent a, a note home, you know, and my dad. Said, you know, he he didn't spank me, but he said, you know, he he rebuked me. This was wrong. You can't steal, you know. He and he taught me, and then, you know, he's very frugal. But he he took his car and he and he drove. We lived in Wayland, Michigan, and we drove from the little farmhouse that was the parsonage all the way in to a little store so that he could buy another Three Musketeers bar. Um, I told this story years ago, and Chuck Smalley Jr. came to the church the next day, and he put this huge Three Musketeers bar in my mailbox perks of being a pastor anyway so don't do that but but so he so he takes me and he says you're going to have to buy and you're going to have to work to pay me for this and then you're going to have to pay the boy back by giving him the three musketeers bar and i said i feel like eating all of it except a little chunk i stole and just give him the chunk back because he said no that's not how you do it but but then then i remember distinctly him saying and he, he you know he bought a bag of chips um which was beyond you know the restitution that i had to make and he said take these and share them with your buddies it was almost like my dad was trying to help me out to make sure my relationship with my buddies was restored after I'd full stolen from them, you know. And I can remember at Hopkins, Michigan, a little brick schoolhouse standing out on the uh, schoolhouse and saying, you guys want some chips? And they hack them over and we stood there in a little circle and we ate those chips. You have a heavenly father who, do- who loves you. He loves you so much he won't let you get away with sin. Somebody has to be punished. And he, and he loves you so beautifully and creatively that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. So you don't have to live in guilt and shame and remorse and sadness and all the ugliness that comes with that. You don't have to have cosmic blackmail over you. The devil can't bring your past up against you. You can bring his future up against him. You can tell about what Jesus did on the cross. You can say, oh, I have a lawyer. I have an advocate. He happens to be the judge's son. He's going to pay. He's already paid for my sin. And he's stepped between me and the wrath of God, the justice of God. And that's why we were so excited when we saw in chapter 12 and verse 10 of Revelation that the, the accused of the brethren one day is going to be cast down. And, and you know what's interesting in that passage? It says something. It says, we overcame him. This is in Revelation 12 and verse 10. And it says, we overcame him. Do you remember what it says? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we love not our lives unto, they love not their lives unto death. Okay, so when I was studying that, uh, I thought, oh, okay, as pastors, look for three points. You know, that's just what we do. Oh, there's three points. You know, that's a sermon right there. But it's not really. So I looked at that, and I thought, oh, yeah, there's three ways to overcome the evil one. You know, the, the, the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, that we love. And I kind of looked at it like that. But as I studied it more carefully, I realized the grammar doesn't hold up to that. The, the grammar, is, it isn't really one, three things. It's actually one thing, and and, ex, and and details about that one thing. How do we overcome Satan? The blood of the Lamb. Jesus died, our advocate, righteous propitiation. Jesus died. That's how you overcome Satan. That's it. And of course, what about the person who's not saved? Then it doesn't matter that Jesus shed his blood for them. But if they get saved, see, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony, in other words, that they claimed that, if you confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in the heart God, raised from the dead, you will be saved. And they persevered, which showed that their profession was true. So here, where are you tonight? Are you saved? Have you made a profession of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ alone? And are you living that profession to the end? If so, you will overcome. And what a, what a beautiful thing that is. So, so, so uh, keep reading ahead in 1 John and uh, studying ahead, and on Wednesday nights when we meet here, uh, we'll keep working through this wonderful teaching of this aged apostle, and it will make us stronger, and I appreciate you coming tonight. We'll have some time now for you to pray.